0: You have to believe that God desires that all people be saved, and yet not all people will be saved. How can an almighty and good God with all power, all authority, desire all people to be saved and not have all people be saved? Well, the answer is because they don't want to be. How is it possible then that the almighty God doesn't just compel them? And this is doubly true because we know that those of us who believe do not believe because we have exercised some supreme power of our will our, our free authority by which we choose God. We know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is strictly by the power of God saying, rise from the dead to us, that we have risen from the dead. How then does he not do that for all? And this is the unanswered question of the Bible. God's answer is, that's for me to know. What I swear to you is I desire all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so that is what I desire for you. That you, as I have shown you mercy, be people of mercy. That you as people of grace then show grace even to those who do not deserve it. Because it is by that grace that those who do come will come. Now in chapter 9 of Romans, St. Paul has been struggling with what this means for what he calls his brothers according to the flesh. Today we would call them Jews. These are those who have the history of the Old Testament, who have all the promises of the Christ who would come, and whom Christ came from. For he was a Jew, St. Paul was a Jew, St. John was a Jew, St. Peter was a Jew. So it has nothing to do with blood, except for Christ's blood. And everything to do with what you believe God wants from and for you. And chapter 10 is going to continue to wrestle with this. If you believe that what God wants from you is for you to prove how great you are to God, then God will continue to destroy you. But if you believe what God says, which is that you'll never do that, but I'm doing it, have done it, will do it in Jesus, well, now you're alive forever already. Romans chapter 10 is on page 946 of your Pew Bible. Of course, if you brought your own Bible, as I encourage you to consider and begin doing, you'll have to figure out where it is on your own. Page 946 in the left column. We're not going to probably get through every verse in the chapter here this morning, but we can get through quite a bit of it together. You're going to hear some very famous verses. If you ever went to a Lutheran school, some verses I'm sure you memorized as a child. You're also going to hear some verses that are much more popular among non-Lutherans than among Lutherans. And I've shared this in various corners. I don't know that I've said this in the pulpit yet. I have a beef. I have a beef with us Lutherans. And here's how it goes. The Baptists quote a Bible verse, and they use it to say something that's wrong. And so we never quote the verse again. We'll show them. And so what we do is while we try to stand on the orthodoxy, that just means the right teaching, what the Bible says, we cut the legs off the stool we're standing on. And so what we want to do today is we find this verse that is a classic, revivalist, sweater's bench, are you going to be saved today or not verse, is not hide from it, not ignore it, not make it not say what it says, we want to get what it actually says. Which is indeed going to force you to recognize that the word of God is either in you, in your mouth and in your heart. So that you're going to confess, he is risen. risen Or it's not. And if it's not, that's your choice. But it also is the path to destruction. All right. Romans 10 begins back with this question of my brothers according to the flesh. He just calls them them here. Brothers, he says, that's you and me, the Christians he's writing to in Rome who are not Jews, although some of them are, I suppose. Uh, He says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The them there is the Jewish people. But for us today, I think it's important to see what he really is talking about. Is not just Jews according to the blood. He's talking about anybody who is an unbeliever, anybody who is not saved. What is Paul's desire for them? Is it that they would go to hell? No, not at all. Is that they would repent and believe the truth, that they would sing hallelujah with us, that they would know the glory of the hope of everlasting life according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul holds this hope, this prayer, in tension with another fact. And that fact is that he knows that on the last day, when those who do not believe are cast into the fiery abyss so that they can no longer ruin the good world that God has made, that he will sing Alleluia. He will declare that to be the greatest justice there ever was. He won't, for one moment, on the last day, be upset that somebody went to hell. But we're not there yet. God is still working the salvation he's achieved in us now. And he's doing that through our desire, which is his desire that all should hear and believe. And so even to those who, do you remember the time that Paul went back to the temple? He like circumcised his friend and like shaved his head and made all these vows so he could go back to the temple and not be accused of being against Moses. And then a huge riot starts and they surround him and they want to kill him. That's who he's talking about. He says, I still love those people. I still love my enemies strictly because they are my brothers according to the flesh. And so I know you have extended friends and family members who are not Christians. You have city and community members that are not Christians. They are your brothers according to the flesh. And I encourage you today to never bury this desire that they would know, that they would believe, that they would be saved. Never bury that. Never dismiss it. Don't smooth it over either and pretend it's there when it's not. But like St. Paul, feel that pain and turn it into prayer. Now, he talks about how his brothers, according to the flesh, they are special. The Jews are special. They are set apart. They have a history that nobody else has. And that history is that as a family, as a tribe, the word of God was among them in very special ways. Verses two through, well, mostly two. I was going to talk about this here. He talked about it more in chapter nine. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So because theirs was the covenants, because theirs was the temple, because theirs was the kingdom, because theirs was the scriptures, they had God in their midst. And from that, they learned to desire God. They desired a knowledge of God, but they never found it. And this is the trick that he says. And it doesn't mean all Jews, okay? This isn't every Jew. David was a Jew who believed. Isaiah was a Jew who believed. He's talking about those who don't believe, but are in the lineage according to the flesh. He says they were zealous, but they were zealous without knowledge. And what's the knowledge they lacked? Was it Sabbath Sabbath worship? You find Christians today, you say that's what we need to recover, Sabbath worship, that'll make the church work. Was it a need for the papacy? No? was it a need for rules and regulations? Was it a need for more people to pray to? No, it was none of those things. It was simply to be, verse three, ignorance of the righteousness of God. And it's, they didn't realize how good God is. It's that simple. Unbelief is not realizing how good God is. And I get it. You look out at it, the world, the world looks pretty evil. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. This isn't new. We just kind of woke up from it. It's always been like this. And so you look at it, the world, and you say, how could a good God be there when the world's so evil? And just like that, you don't know the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. And what the tendency in fallen man, who's all about himself is, is to say, well, if it's not good out there, I'll make it good. Because I can, because I should be God. I mean, we don't always say that like that, but that's what's going on inside your heart. It is, well, God made it this way. I don't like it. I'll fix it. Right? And so... Seeking to establish their own righteousness, right? Seeking to be good without God, they did not submit to God's righteousness when He stood and looked them in the eye and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now you're a Christian because you have submitted to God's righteousness. And again, what does that mean? It means He is risen. Hallelujah, the inkling, the hope, the potential, the very burning in the heart that makes you think for a second, this could be true. This might be true, dear Lord, let it be true. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. And more than this, he's going to mature that seed over a lifetime of hearing this good news, so that it's no longer just a, a hope and a prayer, although there'll be moments of doubt where it is, but that it becomes a conviction and a certainty something you can stand on while the world is burning around you, which again then is that God's righteousness, God's justifying act, God's salvation, Christ's resurrection from the dead is sufficient to answer all questions. Even if I have to wait until the last day to feel it for then verse four, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes again you're not going to find a rule, a pattern, an action that's going to make you good enough to believe you're perfect. It's certainly not going to make you good enough to not die. But Christ did that. He died, though he gave up his own life because the Father asked him to. But he he did not die because of his failure to keep the law. Rather, his death was a keeping of the law, becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the great atoning sacrifice for all people. And to prove this, to vindicate this reality that he had kept the law perfectly, death could not contain him. As I preached yesterday at the wedding, this is the singular distinction between Christianity and every other religious idea in the world. It's not that Confucius doesn't have a few good thoughts. And honestly, when Islam teaches that abortion is wrong, they're right. But what they do not have is a man who has beaten death in public For all the world to see, leaving such an indelible mark upon history that even to this day, when the atheists want to call this the common era, the common era still starts with the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what an impact this man had. That's how much you can't ignore him. Yes? He has then become the end of the law. And don't hear the word end there as it's over, hear the word end there as it's finished, it's completed, it's fulfilled, it's all true. So that his keeping of the law is now yours, which as we looked at back in chapter 6, hardly means you're going to say, I hate the law, I'm not going to do it anymore, whatever, I'm doing whatever I want. doesn't mean that. It means you see how good it is to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. Christ has completed this, that you might walk not under it, but on it, under grace. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now he's kind of getting into a scriptural proof of what he has just said. He's going to dance through a little Leviticus and a little Deuteronomy, and I might have us turn there, depending on where the clock is by the time we get to it. But he's saying that, look, yeah, absolutely. For the old covenant people, there was a condition. Not for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No conditions in their covenant. But at Sinai, when God put himself in a box, said, go into that land over there, and if you do it all just like this, I'll be there forever. The condition was, you got to do it all just like this. Do this and you will live. And the testimony of that history is that guess what? With a perfect law, with a perfect God, with the perfect set of promises, with all the things they could ever want, they are still so evil that they chose not to do it. And if you sit back from here in history, well, they're they're not like us. We would have done it. Well, then you're just a fool. You just haven't faced who you are. You haven't seen how you look askance at other humans, how you hunger for self, how you manipulate the words you tell to yourself to help you believe that you're better than those around you. You just haven't been honest about your problem. And again, this problem is with the perfect law, with the perfect God, we still go to hell unless he does something more than say, do it. And this is Paul's point. So Moses does say, look, if you keep the law, you're going to live forever. Jesus did. But righteousness based on faith, this isn't the righteousness of doing, it's the righteousness of hearing. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. <clears throat> or who will ascend, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Uh, there. Paul is quoting both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. As I said before, he's kind of smashing them together and making a condemnation. And if you go back and you look at even the way Moses is using these texts, the way he's saying, he's saying that the problem is when you start thinking you're going to achieve it on your own. That you say in your heart, oh, this is because of me. I've done this. I will do this. And Paul is emphasizing that is not what then has ever been preached in the name of this God ultimately. And of course, knowing that Christ has ascended into heaven after his resurrection is kind of valuable. He's going to come back when he wants to. It wasn't as though we yanked him down to be born of a Virgin Mary. He came when he wanted to at the fullness of time. It isn't as though once he died and was laid in the tomb, he needed someone to go in and help him. He was in helping us. That's the entire point. So don't ever say to your heart, I'm therefore going to compel God to do anything. If you think you're stubborn, stand face to face with the God who says, I am truth. And see how much you can change his mind by disagreeing with him. What does the word based on faith, the goodness based on God's goodness say? Verse 8, it says that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is The word of faith that we proclaim, he is risen. The word of faith that we proclaim is a simple story, a history, a set of facts that again has so rocked the world that even today, those who hate it can't make it go away. Lutherans like to call this little story, the gospel I know you've heard that word before. Uh, It's one of those words in the Bible that doesn't make sense. And by that, I mean, it's weird. Like certain words you hear and you know what the word means because of how it sounds. But gospel, like I just say that you don't automatically know what it means until I teach you. This is the gospel, right? I have to lay it out for you. That's because English is made up of a mishmash of a bunch of other languages. So none of our root words really tie to to words we understand. Well, I shouldn't say none. Many of them don't all the time, although they do. I'll give you a side example. So like the word fellowship. There's no boats in fellowship, right? Well, that's because it's more related to the word shape, which comes out of the Norse, I believe. And so that, that word ship, not ship shape, but like ship meaning your shape. Well, that no, we don't use that anymore, but it's stuck as an archaic form in fellowship. And so to have fellow shape with somebody is to yeah, be camar- camaraderie. Yeah, you feel akin to each other, right? Okay, so gospel is the same way. And it comes from the word, uh, you're gonna, I hope you kind of laugh and you kind of chuckle and you kind of get tickled by this. It's the word good and spell. Like magic, boom. It's the good spell. But spells are bad. You're right. This is the good spell. Now, over time, people in German confuse the word good with God. So it also gets called sometimes God's spell. Which, again, is just fine because it explains what the word means. It's the words he speaks that are the antidote to our problems. He looked at the world of evil and he cast a good spell. His name is Jesus. Jesus, the good spell is the word who became flesh, dwelt among us that we might see his glory as he died for us on the cross, taking our condition into the grave and beating it with all the glory of the immortal and righteous God. What verse was I on? The word of faith that we proclaim, end of verse eight. That word of faith is the good spell of the story of Jesus Christ. And then he has this verse, here's this bit that the, the Baptists like to use. So, you know, if I'm a Baptist preacher, I'm usually not in the pulpit. I might have a little stand on a stage. I'll walk back and forth a whole bunch, and I'll, I'll try to get you to really believe. And the way I'll do that is I'll ask you, do you, do you really believe? Have you searched your heart? Have you given your life to Jesus? And it, it's fine. It's not wrong, except once you do believe, it's a bit wearisome, and it can really drain you. But what they are wanting to do, so let's best construction these guys a little bit. What they're wanting you to do is to know that when you believe, that's salvation. When you hear that Jesus is risen from the dead, and you're like, "Ah, I I believe this, and you say it, I mean, there's nothing left to do. Now, certainly, you got to walk out and love your neighbor because you're going to live your life on this planet, and you don't want to go out and hate your neighbor. That would be bad. So there's stuff to do, but there's nothing left to do to convince yourself that you're a Christian. Does that mean you shouldn't get baptized? No, get baptized. It'll help your confidence even more. Come to the Lord's Supper. It will feed you on the journey. But the fact again remains that salvation is by grace through, can somebody say it? Faith. So that's what then verse 9 is going to say. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means King. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Meaning the day of resurrection is yours. It is yours. Not because of anything you've done. Not because you exercised your will to make a decision. Because the Holy Spirit has regenerated you to believe this. It's the only way it happens. You will be saved. And then he goes in to talk about like man's internal actions here with verse 10. For with the heart one believes... The heart's a huge part of you. You can think of it as your soul and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So body and soul join together inside and outside in action. And you know this. Someone can say, I'm a Cubs fan, but they're always wearing Cardinals stuff. You know, they're not telling the truth, right? So if you're going to say, I believe in Jesus, but then in your heart, you do other things as a result, well, then you're lying. And so he's just emphasizing how body and soul go together. You can't say you believe one thing and do another thing. But the point is not to make you question. The point is to emphasize to you that when you say that you believe in Jesus, you are therefore going to submit yourself to his word, which is perfect. You are going to be a disciple of what he says. And as a result, he's going to continually transform and renew your mind according to the pattern of his image, which is, again, everlasting for the scripture says verse 11 everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame shame is a topic that we could spend a whole bunch of time on we live in a culture that doesn't know shame we glory in our shame But that doesn't mean we don't feel shame. Like most people that are glorying in their shame, that they're boasting of their evil, they're trying to shout down your saying, I'm not sure that's right. It's because of the deep shame they're suppressing within them. They're trying not to face it. They can't look in the mirror. Not unless they lie to themselves. And I know, not just by proximity to such a godless culture, but because this is the human condition that you do have the same problem, that you have shame that you feel, but you don't want to. And so you shove it down and you tell yourself, no, I'll be this way. No, this is what happened. No, this and that. And you'll just make all these stories. And as much as those stories might keep you going on today, they'll get you out of bed, they'll get you to work, they'll get you to do what you have to do. They don't make the shame go away. The antidote to shame first is to feel it. Let it be there. Own it. Own it as what you deserve. And then, since you're a Christian, believe that Jesus Christ has taken it away. That the point of his resurrection is forgiveness. That his goal is not to leave you in your poor estate, but to make you wealthy beyond your dreams. And money don't count in this game the wealth that you have is the peace of conscience that even your worst acts your most filthy rags are all purified so far as God is concerned and he sees you now not as a slave who has rebelled and is trying to get away with chains on your wrists he sees you as a son and he's running to meet you with a ring to put on your hand and a new cloak for your body he doesn't care what you've done or who you are This goes for Christian and non-Christian alike. That he desires nothing but to lavish you with more grace upon grace upon grace. Which is why you can then believe the promise that because you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. You're still going to feel it. It's your condition right now. You're still going to fight it. That's your condition right now. But On that day of resurrection that we are looking forward to, you will not be put to shame. And knowing that, you can actually just let the shame be a little bit right now. And believe it or not, it starts to kind of leak away piece by piece, day by day. He's quoting a couple of Old Testament verses there when when he says this. Uh, Isaiah 28, 16, I think, was the one that is most emphasized. He's going to say another Old Testament verse again in a moment. He's trying to prove that the Old Testament teaches the same thing the New Testament says. This is the whole goal of Romans, right? Uh, So verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That means there's no racism. Yes, that means that there is no human who is better off because of their bloodline or their family. There is nobody who has privilege, In God's sight, except for Jesus, there is no distinction. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. And these riches, again, are in your soul. A wisdom and a peace of conscience that transcends and overwhelms this world of darkness. He quotes then to prove this, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's the name of Yahweh, the name of Jesus, will be saved. And we've got about three minutes left here. We're halfway through the chapter. And the rest of the chapter is going to bob and weave in a couple different directions. I'm just going to read the next couple of verses without commenting too much on them. Other than to say this, they are certainly something that informs the need for a preacher. But it's not really about preachers. It's about church. It's about us. It's about confessing with your mouth. He says, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, right? So it's got to be by faith. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? That is, it's got to be by the word. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That is, someone's got to say it. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That word they're sent is apostle. So I think he is more than talking about preachers, talking about the scriptures. But again, how is anyone going to ever hear the word of God unless we confess the scriptures? As it is written from the scriptures, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim or preach the good news. That's the good spell. I don't know. you seen my feet. I wear flip-flops sometimes. Take a close look. I'll tell you, they're not pretty. Not pretty. But how beautiful are the feet pierced at the cross, with that dragon's tongue and face nailed behind it to the wood, all your debt, all your burden covered in the blood. <clears throat> and then indeed, that same man risen from the dead washes your feet, body and soul, all of you clean. So how beautiful are your feet since you confess he is risen? Hallelujah. We'll close with verse 18 here. He says, but I ask, have they not heard? Oh, excuse me. No, no, no. Uh, verse 16 is what I wanted, wanted to say. Or he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from. us. The word obey there. How do you obey the good spell of the story of Jesus Christ? It's not the word obey. Uh, it, once upon a time, the word obey could kind of do this work here, but because we are so curved inward on ourselves, we've literally changed English over 300 years to take words like obey, which mean to hear, <laughs> and we've turned it into a word that means do it or else. Yeah? So the word in the Greek is hoop akuo." Say that with me. hoop akuo" It's two words. Hoop, say hoop, hoop, and "akuo." So a kuo literally can't mean anything more than to hear, to listen. That's all it means. So hoopakuo means to under hear, to listen and have those words be bigger than you. That's all that means, which again, the best translation for that is believe these days. Trust works. Now, of course, if I tell you jump and you hupakuo, you're going to jump. So it doesn't deny the power of the law to make one obey, but it is more than this. And so to translate it with regards to the good spell of Jesus, it is they have not all believed. And that's the problem, though. But they have not all believed the gospel. Isaiah says it himself of the Jews long, long before Jesus came. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So this brings us back to our... Our problem, and we're going to struggle with this next week in chapter 11 too, our problem is that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But all men are not going to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The way is wide and many are on it that leads to destruction. The way is narrow and few find it that leads to life. The flesh within us wants to say that's not fair. This is our failure to understand that it's, it's really about justice. From the beginning, the just God has to, must, because he's good, destroy evil. How could a good God not destroy evil? But the miracle is that he doesn't want to let evil win so much that he's not going to let evil take it all with it. He's not going to let evil take you with it. And so from the beginning, he has chosen to elect a remnant, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, a small portion of people who he has compelled to hear and believe. Does that mean he doesn't love the others? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that he loves you. You are his son. You are his child. You are his heir. And everything that he has done and continues to do is that you might know that with conviction, even to the death of your shame. In the name of Jesus, amen.